All right, our ushers are bringing it by, uh, by pencils and note sheets and Bibles if you need them. So go ahead and uh, raise your hand if you'd like them to pass a Bible your way, and they'll make sure that you've got the full Word of God there in front of you so that as we study together, you can look upon it and, uh, and you, you can see where we're coming from with the things that we're bringing to you this morning. Hope that your, uh, your day is full of joy and that you have some time to spend with your family this, uh, this afternoon, but we're also grateful for the time we get to spend together as church family today. Um, I wanted to begin by just kind of expressing some of my frustrations personally that I have had with the tendency for modern preaching to lean so heavily on storytelling today. Um, I was taking some youth to a camp um, several years back, and I remember at this camp there was a lot of buzz because the, the preacher that they had brought in to do the preaching that week, a uh, man by the name of Chris Brown, everyone was saying, oh, you're going to love this guy. He is the best storyteller ever. And I, I have to admit, Chris Brown was a, an excellent storyteller. He was able to captivate the attention of his audience. He was able to use dynamics to bring your emotions up and down. He, he used pauses to cause you to stop and think. His, his way of speaking was very captivating. But throughout the week, I could not help but notice, in some ways, the tragedy that the stories that were told that week far outshadowed the power of what Christ did on the cross. My students went home and a lot of them could tell you all the stories that the pastor had told about his life and things that he had witnessed and things he had seen, but very few could really tell you how it was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his power over sin and over death. Storytelling is not the same as preaching. Preaching is a proclamation of the truth of God. It is to be a challenge to those who hear it, that God is real and that He expects things of His people and that there are sins that we have committed against this God, sins that need to be made right. And preaching should, at its heart and core, be an exaltation to Jesus Christ who is the one solution for that sin problem that would separate us from God. Storytelling is not the same as preaching the truth of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that a story cannot have a powerful impact on us. It doesn't mean that a story cannot be a powerful picture of the gospel. And interestingly enough, the book of Hosea, written some 700 years before the life and ministry of Jesus, God's Son, Hosea is the powerful account of God telling a story of His unfailing love for a people who are chronically prone to being unfaithful. And so we will make sure to see Christ in the Scriptures as we work through this amazing book of the Old Testament. We're going to begin today in chapter 1. We only talked about one verse the last time I preached, which was two weeks ago. And so we're going to go back and look at that verse again, and then we're going to read on to verses 2 and 3 as well. So not too much ground to cover today, but we're going to be looking at the ministry of Hosea as a prophet of God. And how not only were the words that he spoke significant, but also the life that he lived out, they too, his life was also in many ways a picture of his message. And so starting in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king over Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, 
Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask for God to direct us through the understanding that he desires for us in this passage. Excellent Lord, we are grateful that we do not have to come to this text unequipped to understand it if indeed our knee is bowed to the Lord and the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift. For the Holy Spirit is the means by which you enlighten a darkened heart. Father, we are lost and without direction apart from your leading. And so we plead for you this morning to give us understanding and appreciation and love for the word that you have put before us, God. Help us to have a desire for the things of truth and help us to grow when we hear the things of truth. Please keep us from being hard-hearted to the fact that you as a good father may use your word from time to time to chastise the hearts of your sons and daughters, to, to commend them to truth and to turn them away from their iniquity so that they might see the goodness of God and they might walk in a way that represents uh, the head of the family, our, our, our father. And so we praise you, Lord God, for all that you do and to give us edification, to make us stronger. And we trust that through this time in the word, you will accomplish these things to your glory. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The words that we just read may come across as somewhat shocking to some, maybe a little bit alarming. The things that God reveals about himself through Hosea, the way that he reveals those things, really stand out in the minds of the reader. God has a track record of putting his messengers into very strange situations as a means of communicating his message to the world. Well, some examples of this from the Old Testament, and there are many. When you think about the prophet Jonah, you think about a man who grew up an Israelite and whose sworn enemy were the Assyrians. Uh, the nation of the Assyrians was a warring people. They were extremely cruel to the Israelites, the way that they did injustice to them in battle and different ways was a travesty. And so when God comes to Jonah the prophet and says, I want you to travel to the greatest city of the Assyrians, to Nineveh, and I want you to preach, I want you to preach a message of repentance, not a message that says, I will destroy you, but a message that says, if you do not turn from your sin and seek the mercy of God, then you will indeed be destroyed. Now, this was a difficult charge for Jonah to receive, so much so that Jonah refused at first to receive it. He fled the command of God, though his very calling was to preach the things that God put into his mind and heart, to say the words that God gave to him. At first, Jonah refused to do it. He did not want to preach to these sinners, these sinners that in his eyes deserved destruction and condemnation. He did not want to preach to them the mercy of God and see them turn and be spared. In Isaiah 20, the prophet Isaiah is called to walk naked and barefoot for three years. This unusual, unorthodox kind of preaching and ministry was to be assigned to Israel of shame. For they had tried to put their faith and hope in Egypt and in Cush. And so he was laying bare this poor decision uh, to, to seek out strength and protection 
from a foreign body. They did not honor God when they already had a God protecting them and caring for their needs. And so Isaiah did what many of us would think would be unthinkable. And that prophet would have been arrested in our day and age if he would have gone around obeying the word of the Lord. He preached for three years um, without clothing on. Ezekiel chapter 4, the prophet lays on his side for a total of 430 days, bound by ropes in front of a small model of a siege that he had built uh, that depicted a, a picture of Jerusalem being sieged by a great army. And he did this in obedience to the instruction of God. God was going to siege Israel through a foreign power. And so the prophet was told to give a very vivid, and I'm sure it was uncomfortable and painful, picture of what God would do. Not only that, he instructs Ezekiel when he was going to eat to cook his food over a fire made with human excrement. And even, even Ezekiel is so struck by this, he pleads with God and says, Lord, you know that from my youth, I've desired to obey your instructions to not defile my food. And so he asked for God's mercy and God relented a bit and allowed him to make the fire out of dung from a cow. And so this, this picture was a way of showing Israel vividly that they were filling themselves with filth, that they were, undefi- they were defiled and were not holy before God because of their disobedience to the instruction that he had given to them. Later on in Ezekiel, we see it again. God takes Ezekiel's own wife, who he cherished, whom he loved, and he takes her life. And he tells Ezekiel he's about to do it. Not only that, he does what some would, see, would say was cruel. He instructs his prophet not to mourn over the passing of his wife. He's not to shed a tear for her. He's to dress not in sackcloth and ashes with dirt upon his head as one who had lost something great, but he's to dress like a normal person for a regular day. This was to expose in Israel their lack of love for Jerusalem and for the temple. And the fact that when the temple was soon destroyed by Babylon, they should be brokenhearted about those things, and yet the hardness of heart that they had exhibited towards their God indicated that, that God was saying, listen, you wouldn't, this is how you would act to me if I took your your Jerusalem away right now. And of course, we can't forget Abraham. Abraham, who for years waited for God to give him the seed of promise, a son of his own, through which the Abrahamic promise would be fulfilled. And finally, at a very advanced age, Sarah and Abraham are able to conceive. They have a child. They name him Isaac. But in chapter 22 of Genesis, Abraham calls to Abraham, God calls to Abraham, rather, says, I want you to do something. I want you to take Isaac, the son of promise, and I want you to take him up on this hill, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice of faith. Give your son to me as an offering. And of course, we know that now from our perspective that this was a picture of what the father would do for us in sending his own son. But what a shocking revelation that that Abraham had to hear from the father. And in case you've never read that or you're not familiar with it, go back and read in Genesis 22. God does not have Abraham go through with that. But God does go through with his promise. He does provide through his own son a sacrifice for us, a sacrifice that would defeat sin and death forever. Example after example of God pressing his servants, men whom he had called to minister the word, men that God loved, 
pressing them into circumstances that were unusual, that were shocking, that sometimes came at a great cost to the prophet himself. Why would the Lord do this? What reasons lie behind the strange manner of communication that we see again and again throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the lives of the prophets? Well, there are, are several reasons for it. First of all, we need to consider that God communicates in ways that man, that human beings like you and I, God communicates to us in ways that we can handle. The very fact that God communicates to us in the form of language is itself a necessary compromise for God. For human beings are finite creatures that do not have the intellectual capacity to know all things at once as God does. And for this reason, God who is infinite, God who exists perfectly and fully, God who is always everywhere and who can do every good thing must present himself to man in the kinds of limited ways that man can handle and begin to make sense of. How many times have you been overwhelmed with a sense of awe and love and you tried to communicate how you were feeling and you just couldn't put it into words in an adequate way that would represent your heart for that person that you cared for? You might have felt that experience this week as you sat in front of your Mother's Day card thinking about mom. You wanted to tell her how much she's meant to you, how much her compassion over the years to you has taught you to be compassionate. You wanted to express to her the joy that you have had in, in, in representing the family that, that she in so many ways nurtured and, and carried along with the help of your father. Now, and so you sat there and you wanted to express yourself, but it just doesn't seem like any of the words that you wrote on the paper really meant what you wanted them to mean. And that's because language is not a perfect way to get in an idea from one mind to another mind. But it is how human beings have to share their ideas. And so God in His lofty perfection chooses to communicate to us in this somewhat limited way. Think, it, think about the limitations of our speech. Think about the limitations of a phrase like we find in 1 John 4, 8, where John writes, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let's just focus on the last part of that verse. God is love. Is that a true statement? Absolutely it is. It is God who made the statement, so it's true, giving it to us through the Apostle John. And it is true because it indeed plays out in real time. There is no greater example of love than the God who would make us, and despite our rebellion against Him, would draw us near to Himself. There is no one who loves in a more committed way. Apart from the character of God revealed to man, we would not even know how to begin to love one another. So God is love is a true statement. But does it tell you everything you need to know about who God is? No, it, it does not. The simple phrase, God is love, while being totally true, is only three words that expresses a reality that could be explained and fleshed out using millions of words. So language and even scripture which comes to us by way of limited human language, is a necessary compromise because by language God can deliver the aspects of knowledge of His infinite being to us and we can understand it with our finite minds. You think about Philippians 2, 5 through 8 and what it communicates to us that even in sending His Son Jesus Christ, God has condescended to us by sending Christ the divine person of God has come and, and made small of himself in a way. He has taken on the nature and the, the form of a human being. He has, 
He has come down to speak to us on our level. He humbled himself and took on flesh, meaning that he assumed a limited form, taking on the nature of man so that he might connect to us in meaningful ways, ways that we could comprehend and grasp. And by the personal sacrifice of himself, which he offered up on the cross, that, that he might atone for our sin, that he might show us that we can be his through faith. He bridged the gap between a perfect God, an infinite God, a limitless God, and a finite and corrupt-hearted man. So God communicates to us in ways that we can comprehend. Secondly, the visible nature of the, the sign acts that we've spoken about this morning makes them intrinsically memorable and attention-grabbing to us. We are prone as human beings to have minds that wander. Some of us have been battling that this morning during worship time here today as the word is coming out of our mouth and we're singing glories to God, but our mind is someplace else. We are easily distracted. Because these sign acts are unusual and shocking by nature, they tend to captivate the mind. They tend to draw the thoughts of those who witness them and hear them. So we, when we read of the prophets of God faithfully living out these unorthodox commands, we are witnessing a kind of divine theater whereby God is presenting a vivid parallel to the spoken word of the message that the prophet is preaching. The mind of man does not think the way that God's mind thinks, right? Isaiah 55 makes this very clear to us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what God thinks is far loftier than what we think. It follows that many of the things that God chooses to reveal to us will be contrary to what we expect. He doesn't think in the same rhythms that we do, in the same ways that we do. And because of the way that our minds work, when God does something or communicates something that is far out of the norm from what we expect to see, that thing tends to stand out and draw our hearts and mind. We tend to more readily contemplate those things as we try to make sense of them and fit them into the paradigm that we hold of what reality really is. When you're driving down the road on a given day, how many human beings do you drive by? And you don't even give their lives or what they're thinking or what they're doing a second thought. They're filling up the world just like you are. You don't know them, so you just go upon your way. They go north, you go south. They're living their lives and you're living yours. And you pass without a word. That's what you would expect to happen. There might be a smile. You might move to the side to let a stranger pass, but those things are done almost without a thought on autopilot. But what happens when you're just moving along and suddenly somebody breaks expectations, they look you right in the eye and they wave their hand at you. They motion for you to come near to them. How does that change your routine? You might not know them at all, but because their invitation is not what you expected, you can't just keep walking. You have to think about it. You have to pay at least a little bit of attention to that situation, right? Are they looking past you? Is there somebody else behind you that they know that they're waving to? Are they, are they waving to you? Are they trying to help you with something? Maybe something's wrong that you haven't realized yet and they're trying to flag you down so they can help you out. Do you know them from somewhere and you just don't recognize them yet? In reality, 
they're probably just trying to sell you something. Uh, that's one of the tactics that salespersons use nowadays. You might see it when uh, you're driving down the road and somebody's got a little display of strawberries or oranges and they look at you and they wave. They're trying to make some kind of personal connection to you to disrupt the autopilot that you're on so that you might consider what they have to offer. But that unexpected gesture clicked you out of your autopilot reaction and kept you from just moving on. It's why businesses employ people who wave those big arrows around, pointing you into their stores. That's not something a, poor, a person would normally spend their time doing, right? So when you see a human being doing something like that, you tend to stop and at least ask yourself, why is that person making such a visual ruckus on the side of the road? But the unorthodox sign acts, uh, sign acts that God calls his prophets to accomplish are more than just pragmatic ways to grab attention. They carry meaning. They are filled with purpose. These kinds of unorthodox callings demonstrate the prophet's need to trust and to depend upon the God whom he represents. The prophet is, in a very basic way, just like any other human being, and should respond to the God who created him like every other human being should respond to God with appreciation, with humility, and with obedience. But is that how people typically respond to God? No. Because of the curse of Adam, we have a heart that typically rebels against God, that, that runs from him. Even when God calls his servant to do something that goes against his expectations, a faithful belief that God knows what he is doing and that he is always doing what is best should calm our fears and cause us to obey. But we know from practice and experience that we don't always do that. So God, when he calls a prophet to do something extraordinarily difficult and challenging to them, sometimes even shameful to them, their obedience sends a message to people like us. Isn't Jonah an especially interesting case in that regard? The prophet that we spoke about earlier, as he was not initially faithful to his charge. He wanted to resist the calling of God, and it took an intervention on God's behalf, a divine intervention, whereby a great storm interrupted the ship that was sailing away from the destination that God had called Jonah to, a storm so great and so mighty that the ship was going to sink if something wasn't done. And Jonah finally confesses and says, this storm is from me. It's because I disobeyed the Lord God and he is punishing me. And they threw him over the side of the boat. And God caused that prophet to be swallowed up into the belly of a great fish and taken all the way to the place where he was supposed to go. So the prophet in his obedience to God, even if that obedience is forced by the divine hand of God, is in some ways a message to us that even when we don't understand what God is doing, we need to learn to trust him and to put our hope in him. Think about the song that we sang just before I, I came into the pulpit this morning. We sang a song called, Though You Slay Me. And the words of that song are, are very powerful. And to some, they're jarring. The lyricist says, I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck down to bind me up. You say that you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering." So the lyrics of this song are adapted from Job 13.15. And who knows about suffering other than Job, right? Job is a man who, like these other prophets, was put into difficult situations because God had something to show through his life. The story of Job is about one who trusted the Lord but suffered great personal loss. Despite all of this, and even though Job understands that nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will, Job is committed to clinging closely to God. Because nothing happens by chance, 
the songwriter acknowledges that it is God who has, in a sense, broken him and torn him apart by allowing him to undergo such difficult trials and tribulations. In Job's case, he lost his family, his children all passed away. His great wealth and resources were stripped away from him. Even his health was severely compromised to the point of misery. And he yet understood that this was all part of God's hand. It was not just bad luck, but God had caused this to happen. The songwriter also confesses that God doesn't allow these things for nothing. You struck down to bind me up in order that you might strengthen me again. And you say you do it all in love that I might know you in your suffering. You see, our Savior is a suffering Savior. He is one who is willing to give his life on our behalf. God cares so greatly for us that he will hurt for us. And so when we see the suffering of Christ, that makes an impression on us. It also teaches us to experience suffering differently than we did before we knew Christ. There is a possibility to learn to respect the sufferings that Jesus went through to an even greater extent when we have to endure some small measure of suffering as well. And so the, the song goes on to say, though you slay me. In other words, what that phrase means is, even if you were to slay me, even if you were to demand my life from me, and then he expresses his point of view, yet I will continue to praise you, God. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. And I'm going to sing a song to the one who is all that I need. Take everything from me if you must, God. Do not take away yourself from me. I need you more than I need anything else. And so when we sing that song, in some ways, we're, we're putting our minds and our hearts in the position of these prophets who have had to do extraordinary sign acts at the command of God. The one who puts their trust in God and has been made new by the finished work of Jesus Christ finds great comfort in the midst of trials and sufferings because they know that God is holy, they know that he is good, and his perfect character is not determined by whether he gives a sinful man like us, a happy and long and healthy life. It's not determined by that. He's good because he is good. And all that he does flows from his goodness. The prophet's willingness to say, yes, God, I will trust you, serves as a pattern that we would benefit from following as we contend with the things that God lays before us as followers of Christ. Now, would Jesus, in his offering of himself on the cross, fall into this category of prophetic sign acts. Think about that. We've talked about Jonah. We've talked about Abraham. Does the work that Christ do, does it fit into this category of prophetic sign acts? In some ways, yes. The Father does ordain it to happen, doesn't he? It is extremely unorthodox. The Israelites were not expecting their coming king, the, the promised seed of David, to come and rule the way that he did. They didn't expect to see their king on a cross. They expected to see him on a throne. They expected to see him crush those nations that would oppose Israel. But instead, he comes and crushes sin. So it is definitely an unorthodox calling that Christ fulfills. It grabs the intention, doesn't it? Everyone was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and talks about it to this day, 2,000 years on. It is an example of perfect obedience to the charge of God. Even though Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father might remove the cup of this difficult charge from his lips, still ultimately Jesus desired what the Father desired more than what he desired. And he obediently responded to this charge. 
In other ways, what Christ did is not a sign act. Sign acts are symbolic markers that point to a more concrete concept. Ezekiel's laying bound on his side for all of those days represented an actual siege that would one day soon cripple the city of Jerusalem. Hosea's tumultuous marriage represents the literal unfaithfulness of the people of Israel who is betrothed to God. But the cross, friends, the cross is not simply symbolic. The cross doesn't just point to another thing that the believer must take to heart and understand. The crucifixion of Jesus is itself the means by which God deals with our literal legal sin debt. So it is not just a sign that points to something else. It is the thing itself. It is the fulfillment of so many signs that came before. The death that Jesus dies is not merely sentimental to us. It results in the sure justification of sinners. Those who were formerly enemies to God in that moment are rendered free of their guilt and shame. The wrath of God no longer rests upon them because it has been put on Christ and punished fully. It is not merely an object lesson by which we should say, man, I, I need to lay my life down too, just like Jesus did. No, it is the one whose life is worth infinitely more than any other life, laying that life down as the only way of washing clean the debt of sin that we owe to God. We will see, in fact, that Hosea's sign act, his marriage, is actually a symbolic picture of the kind, kind of uh, steadfast and loyal love that God has for his covenant people. A love so great that Jesus would pay the ultimate price to free his bride from the weight of sin and bind us close to him. Hosea's life and message helps us to interpret the events of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection properly as acts of redeeming love. The opening verses here of chapter 1 reveal that Hosea's unconventional calling is twofold. Hosea will marry an unfaithful wife. Now, when it is said here that Hosea will do this, and, and Hosea, as we see in verse 3, he agrees to this. He, he complies with the calling of God. It is not necessarily saying that he is going to marry somebody who is already an unfaithful wife, who is perhaps a prostitute or a woman of ill repute. But he is saying that by the will of God, one who would by God's providential plan echo the unfaithfulness of Israel would become the wife of Hosea. In a sense, all human beings are unfaithful, aren't we? So in that sense, an unfaithful wife is the only kind that Hosea could possibly marry. But God makes it clear that the wife of Hosea would marry not to remain faithful to Hosea, her husband, but through her infidelity, God would show Israel a picture of his greater faithfulness. And so, we're going to hear a term that in many ways causes people's uh, ears to perk up and sometimes their sensibilities to go on edge, and that's the word whoredom. And in the original language of Hebrew, that word whoredom is zununim, which means harlotry. It is a noun. And so a wife of this kind of lifestyle, a wife of harlotry. Now, whoredom is perhaps a bit misleading because it implies that this woman is engaged in prostitution, sexual behavior for hire. The term used in the Hebrew is not that narrow. The term zuninum emphasizes indiscriminate sexuality, such as fornication, 
So not necessarily a selling of the self for physical pleasure to someone else, but any kind of willingness to engage in fornication outside of the acceptable bounds of covenant marriage. By obeying God's charge, Hosea is agreeing to enter into a covenant that is supposed to be holy and pure, that is supposed to help two people love each other better by means of promises and vows. He is obeying to enter into this covenant knowing that it will collapse, knowing that one part party in this covenant will not uphold their vows. And I think that we would understand, even if you're not married today, even if you don't have a covenant wife or husband, how difficult it would have been for Hosea to come to terms with the fact that he was giving up on what so many people count their greatest blessing next to salvation. And that is the ability to walk through life side by side with someone else who loves the Lord and who cares for you who is going to protect and provide for you if you're, if you're a wife, who is going to be your helpmeet and is going to, to come alongside you humbly and allow you to lead if, if you are a husband. We look forward to that experience. And God calls many of us, but not all of us, to it. And yet here he is calling Hosea to something so challenging, to take this framework which is supposed to produce joy and comfort and peace and to know that that framework will instead create strife for him and heartache and shame. Hosea is fully aware that his own covenant marriage will not yield those blessings. His marriage will instead become a canvas upon which Yahweh paints the representative infidelity of Israel. But his calling is twofold. First of all, he's going to marry a wife of unfaithfulness. And secondly, Hosea's marriage is going to bear children who would, by their association to their unfaithful mother, would carry a heavy stigma upon them. Some of this we're going to develop next week as we get into the naming and the birth of the three children that will have symbolic significance to the message uh, that Hosea is called to preach. He's to have these children, and these children are to, in many ways, show that the offspring of this covenant has not been favorable, that it has not been uh, a, a joy to Hosea. In many ways, the same, Israel and the nations that are birthed out of this covenant promise have not proven to be a joy to the Lord because of their infidelity to him, because of their lack of faithfulness to the commandments that he has given to them as his covenant people. Does God have any business interfering with the family of Hosea? Is he wrong to meddle? with the marriage and the children of Hosea here? Absolutely not. God has the freedom and the dominion to do what he wills, and we should understand his nature and his character as such that whatever he wills to do will always be appropriate and good. So it is not for us to stand back and say, how dare God cause his prophet to do such a difficult thing? These children and their very specific names will serve as a sign act themselves, and God is going to use that to enhance the message that Hosea is going to preach. And he has every right to use the lives of his servants in these, way, in these ways. And so you might ask yourself, why does he do it this way? Why does God employ this particular sign act? God again and again identifies Israel, his covenant people, as a kind of bride to himself. And so to lay the foundation of how this metaphor is going to unfold in the life of Hosea, Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 54. In Isaiah 54, it's important for us to look 
at the story of Hosea within the greater context of what God is revealing to his people. Hosea is not the beginning of God's communication to his people. It is a further advancement of what God has already been communicating to the nation since the covenant of Abraham, since that was established and was pushed forward through the covenants of Moses and the covenant of David. And so in Isaiah chapter 54, uh, look at verses 4 through 8. God says to the prophet, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not, uh, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. This prophecy from the book of Isaiah works to frame our understanding of the sign act that God calls Hosea to. So let us make some specific observations about what Isaiah revealed. We see here that it's not proper to think of all creation as the bride of God. It's far more specific than that. Israel, God's chosen people, is specifically called into covenant to be the bride of Yahweh. We also see here that Isaiah hints Israel will fall short of her marriage vows. In fact, at the time of Isaiah's preaching, they already are. Um, shame, disgrace, and reproach are all emotional burdens from which Israel will need to be loosened by her loving groom. So we see that there's a need for redemption in her life, according to these verses in Isaiah 54. And thirdly, we see that this covenant, though jeopardized by unfaithfulness on the part of Israel will be salvaged, not by the bride herself, but by the husband who refused to cast away this shamed wife. God himself will assure that the covenant does not fail despite the many challenges of Israel being unfaithful as his bride. Though she worships other gods, though she forgets the commandment and acts as she is autonomous, though her love is for anything but God at times, God will work in such a way that he will redeem that unfaithful bride. Jeremiah employs the same language to describe God's covenant relationship to his people. He says in chapter 31, verses 31 through 32, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so we get an indicator there uh, from Jeremiah that this covenant is not just going to pertain to national Israel, that when the new covenant comes, there will be an expansion. And we see, in fact, from the New Testament itself that the church begins to be referred to as the very bride, not just of Yahweh, but of specifically Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27 we are instructed very practically, but also theologically, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is clearly language that echoes the language of the Old Testament indicating that God's people will be a bride to him. And so here Christ is considering the church, the New Testament, New Covenant church as his bride here. We see it again in Revelation chapter 19. Verses 6 through 8, when I, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And those righteous deeds could not happen if it were not for the righteousness of Christ being imputed to this beautiful bride. So God's message through the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, and the language later used by the apostles John and Paul, capitalize on this meaningful covenant parallel to illustrate that, like an adulterous wife, Israel has also gone astray in such a heinous way as to jeopardize the covenantal bond. So this is a serious role that Hosea has been commanded to play now. For his family and his own marriage is going to become a picture that carries much importance to the nation of Israel. His faithful love for his wife Gomer will in many ways set a sign forward to the unrelenting love that Christ will have for his bride, the church. It's going to cost Hosea much to obey this calling, but the result will be clear. It will be a sign pointing forward to the perfected work of God. So this unconventional calling comes with much complication and it doesn't come without some controversies. There appears to be some, some legal complication to the command that God makes to his servant Hosea. And it has given much pause to those who have worked through these scriptures throughout the years over the last several centuries of the church as saints try to make sense of what God is calling Hosea to do. Particularly, the book of Leviticus chapter 21 says this. This is... God speaking through Moses to try to establish the standards by which the nation of Israel will conduct itself. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. Skipping down to verse 6, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. So here we see in the book of Leviticus, under the, the old covenant structure, that the priests of God were not to marry women of ill repute. They were to be a picture of the holiness of God. And so their set-apart lives were to display to the rest of the people a desire and a striving for, a holy commitment to purity and sanctity. And this has led some to question whether God would ever actually command Hosea to take to himself a literal bride of unfaithfulness. Even to the point where some commentators, some whom I respect greatly, would say that the story of Hosea's marriage and children is actually an extended metaphor, that it is just a parable, and that he did not actually follow through with these acts, but instead preached it as an object lesson to people. Now, I don't believe that is the case, and I think there are explanations for what we see here in Leviticus 21. I think that Hosea literally did marry Gomer. I believe that this is a historical account of a man whose marriage 
was a vivid picture to people of the struggles and the, 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 the shortcomings of faithfulness that we find in God's covenant people. And I, I think that because when we look at Leviticus 21, we see that this is a message to who? It is a message to priests, to those who were the sons of Aaron. It's a message to a very specific and narrow people. And Hosea is not indicated to be a priest in the order of Aaron. So in a very technical sense, this aspect of the law does not directly apply to his station and his calling. Yet the premise that it is built on is still that the man of God, the representative of God, should pursue a holiness. Prophets are supposed to be holy. So I can understand why people would see chapter 21, verses 1 through uh, 7 that we read there, and they would say, well, doesn't that apply to a prophet? But let me give you more reasons why I believe that Hosea is truly going to follow through with what God has called him to do in a literal sense. If God was presenting an allegory to us here, if he did not really call Hosea to take a wife to himself, then why would he give her a name? Why would that name, Gomer, be attached to a father, Diblaim? You know, we see time and time again in the parables of Jesus that the, the people in those parables didn't typically have a name. We don't know the name of the prodigal son. Uh, we don't know the name of, uh, of the woman who um, swept her house to try to find the coin that was missing. These are obviously stories that serve as an object lesson to us. But here we have some historical background on this lady. It's not much, but we see that she's connected to a family line. Why would God, if this is an allegory, not include any kind of directive as to the allegorical nature of the account? And nowhere in Hosea do we see God giving us a hint that this was not actually something that occurred. Rather, he speaks it as though it is history. It is given to us simply and to the point, as if this is a historical account rather than a word picture or a metaphor. And then also we see in verse 8, we're told this small detail. We're told that Gomer did not bear her third child, Loami, until she had weaned Loruhamah which is a detail completely unnecessary if this is nothing more than allegorical, symbolic story. We have a picture of, of a waiting, of a time between. So I think that Hosea is, is literally marrying a wife. Her name is Gomer, and that they have literal children. Those children are given very difficult symbolic names. I believe they are referred to in different ways as their lives go on. But we are not looking here, I don't believe, at an allegory, a metaphor. We're looking at a sign act lived out by the prophet. Now, is it wrong for God to ask his prophet to do something like this? It is not. The law looms over us, for we have a, an obligation to stand under the authority of the God who created us. But the law does not loom over God, does it? God is the ultimate being. So it's not like God is the best of all beings, but the law hangs over him. In fact, the law flows out from God. Every law that we have comes from the nature and the character of God. The law has authority over us in that we are not the creator and we do not have authority over it. But the law flows from God and not man, so we have no right to augment it or change it. God does, however, have the right to work in ways that seem to augment the law. I'll give you a case in point. Abraham is specifically told, sacrifice your son Isaac to me. Now, this is something that God has plainly commanded his people not to do. They were called to never offer human sacrifice as something pleasing to God. It would not please him. He would reject that. 
Humans are made in the image of God and their lives are to be counted as precious. They are to be preserved. It is the basis for the sixth commandment of thou shalt not murder. It is the basis for our battle against abortion and the, and the heinous act of ending life in the womb. And yet Abraham is commanded to do this very strange thing. And he must make sense of the calling that is laid upon him. Now, at no point does Abraham doubt the holiness of God in requiring this of him. Rather, he makes the best sense of the situation that he can. If God has promised to bless the world through Isaac, and now he is commanding me to sacrifice Isaac, and if God cannot break his promise to me, thinks Abraham, then he must intend to resurrect my sacrificed son. Perhaps this is a dramatic sign of something God will do in the days to come. And in fact, as we read in the New Testament account in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, the, the beauty of progressive revelation shines light onto those earlier events. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering, offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, now here's the explanation, he considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham was convinced, since God is good and is a keeper of promises, if I obey him in this strange command and I, I offer up my son, then he will surely raise him from the dead because God cannot break his promise to me. It is out of his nature, it is out of his character. He must do what is good. And think about the situation with Hosea in similar ways. How can it be sinful for Hosea to take this kind of a wife to himself? If it was sinful, wouldn't God himself be guilty of such a sin to take an unfaithful wife in Israel to himself? The shocking nature of this union is the point of the union. God is holy and above us. He is beyond sin he never commits iniquity. He is pure in every way. And yet wretched sinners and rebels like us, he is calling to himself in love. This is the scandalous nature of the gesture, the very point. Israel has not kept her covenant. She does not deserve steadfast love. Yet Yahweh, who knew this before he even betrothed her to himself, is determined to give steadfast love to her despite the fact that she does not deserve it. There's a powerful love behind God's willingness to love despite the consequences that he will experience because of that love. But then again, there must be a resolution. God is not going to remain with an unfaithful people forever. She will be refined by his love or she will be cast away. Something will inevitably pass away in the holy union of God with a broken and sinful people. And you know what passes away? The sinfulness of his people. It is put to death on the cross. God makes a way for this unfaithful wife to become faithful so that he is not shamed forever by his bride. As Revelation says, his bride will be presented to him spotless and holy and clean, not because of what we have done in obedience to him, but because of the obedience of Christ which has been given to his people. Hosea 1, verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so we see here at the end of this passage, Hosea's obedience. We see his willingness to say yes to Yahweh despite the extreme personal cost of that obedience. 
This stands as an immediate contrast to the infidelity and the disobedience of Israel to Yahweh. And so, in a sense, it exposes them. It makes it clear to them how wretched their error has been and how serious the consequences will be if there is not a repentance in their hearts. We do not hear of Hosea lamenting his charge. Perhaps he did, as Ezekiel did. We do see Jesus considering the weight of what the Father called him to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, as I mentioned earlier. And so it wouldn't be wrong for Hosea to to wonder why God was causing him to do this. But we don't hear about any kind of pushback. What we see in the Scriptures is a willingness on Hosea's part to do it. If it be the only way, it will be the will of the Father. He will do it. Is obedience to Yahweh our King? Is it easy or is it difficult, church? The answer to that is yes. It is both easy and difficult. We are a new creation, but we've not entirely ceased to be what we formerly were. Vestiges of that rebellious heart that desires comfort and thinks of the self above others, that heart that wants to be free from any kind of rule, those vestiges still linger in us. So it is not difficult for us to see how how hard it would be for Hosea to receive a calling like this. And it's, it's not easy for us to say yes to the commands of God in all ways. It's not easy for the young man who wants a wife to stay pure of heart and mind and to reject the ideas of this world and to be holy and faithful unto the wife that God may one day give to him. It's not easy, but he's called to do that, and so is she. It is not easy for us to put our faith above even our work and to stand for what is true, even if it would risk our employment and our means of taking care of ourselves. But we're called to do these things. It is not easy for us to be rejected by the culture and to be cast aside as crazy people, as lunatics, because of this historic truth that we cling to. But it is the truth of God, and so we do not trade it in for the lie of the day. It is not easy to always follow after the Lord God. It can be very difficult for our nature to embrace God's calling and to do what is contrary to the typical way of man. And yet, on this we must be clear. Disobedience to the command of God for the Christian is far more troubling than the face of opposition can ever be. Whatever trial God calls us to in obedience to Him, to disobey God would be worse than that. We want to be obedient to the Lord who holds our future in His hands. We want to love Him in a way that shows the world the change that He has made in our hearts. And so while it can be very difficult to be obedient, I would encourage you, church, it is far more terrible to think about disobedience. It is far more troublesome to the heart to think of putting our covenant promises to the side and just living in a way that we can get by without resistance, living in in a way that we might become acceptable to our culture. Friends, let us rather please God than men. Even the most reluctant prophet acknowledged this. Look at what Jonah says in Chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This comes from the lips of Jonah, who struggled so mightily to say yes to God. Jonah, who did not care for the charge that God had given to him, who ran disobediently away from the sign act that Yahweh had commanded him to perform, confesses here that worshiping empty, false gods is an insult to the covenant. He acknowledges that disobedience to God is effectively a forsaking of the covenant. 
In light of this, he revisits his own profession of faith in God and promises to uphold the vows that he had made previously. And ironically, he says this from the belly of the great fish. He says it having tasted of the chastisement that his father brought upon him, the punishment that he had endured from a good father who refused to let his child run off and be rebellious forever. And this is something I pray we can learn, friends, that we might understand through the faithfulness of the prophets and those who've come before, particularly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that we, no matter how hard the charge, are called to obey the Lord God and can only do so in so much as we trust in Him and let Him be our comfort and peace. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your grace in our lives and we ask that You would humble our hearts, that we would consider the life and experience of Jonah and and rejoice in all the ways that it coincides perfectly with the great revelation of Your redemptive will in Jesus Christ, Your Son. I thank You, God, that though we have been an unfaithful people, that each one of us here today, if, if... Being a son or daughter of the king required perfect obedience. Not one of us would be eligible. We would not be worthy to be in your kingdom, to sit at your feet, to be numbered at your table, Lord. But help us to rejoice in the great wonder that Jesus Christ alone could do what the law required and that in his perfect obedience to you, he has made a way that did not exist before. It is the only way. And so I pray, God, that this truth would be to us our joy and our comfort and would be to us a strength when we are faced with the difficult aspects of following after Christ. God, remind us with your word, Lord, that it is better to hunger and thirst for righteousness than to pretend to be full of righteousness. It is better to seek peace than to demand our own way. God, give us prepared hearts that are ready to be persecuted for your name's sake, knowing, Lord, that those who came before who preached your name, the prophets, that they were persecuted in like manner. And Father, those who bear the name of Christ today uh, must ready themselves to endure hardship, God. But Father, all these are small things compared to the uh, overabundant joy of knowing that we will one day rest with you in heavenly places. Give us steadfast, hesed love, Lord. Help us to endure long and to not grow cold or distracted from worshiping our God in truth. I pray, God, that as we come before you that you would uh, give us this word in such a way that it would make an impact on our hearts and souls that we might better serve you, Lord, and appreciate our Savior. We pray this all in his perfect name. Amen.